Hey everybody, welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a very interesting guest for you today. She is Zelda Rowland, and she is founding director of the Yale Prison Education Initiative, and we're going to bring her out shortly. But first, let me thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. Zelda Rowland. She is the founding director of the Yale Prison Education Initiative at Dwight Hall, which brings access to Yale classes and other campus programming to incarcerated students in Connecticut. She also serves as the inaugural director of the University of New Haven's Prison Education Program and its partnership with the Yale Prison Education Initiative, also known as YPEI through which incarcerated students earn degrees in prison and receive support when released from confinement. She is a lecturer in Yale's Education Studies program, a visiting assistant professor in the Department of Communications at the University of New Haven, an affiliated faculty of the Arthur Lyman Center for Public Interest Law at Yale Law School, and a fellow of Jonathan Edwards College. Zelda, welcome into the back room. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I want to just sort of step back a little bit and ask you about your background, your childhood, what your parents did, who your inspirations were, what got you to the place that you're at today? Yeah, I grew up in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I'm from LA originally. My childhood, you know, I have an incredible family, Mm -hmm. an incredible father and mother. My dad was actually a criminal defense attorney Mm -hmm. when I was very young. So in retrospect, maybe it made sense that I ended up in this type of work, although you know, it doesn't make him less nervous about me doing what I do. But my dad is an attorney and uh, he recently retired. He was a workers' compensation attorney. And my mom was in the music industry. She's sort of one of these hyper creative, hyper brilliant and capable people who's just always, you know, dabbled in different incredible projects and writing. And I, I think growing up, I had a family that, I mean, one of the most important things I think that my mom especially conveyed to me was she just had this sense that in in my generation, we would all have many different types of jobs and that some of the jobs that people would have hadn't even been thought of yet. And I think an elementary school teacher had um, said that to her and it stuck with her. And she said it to me and it always stuck with me. So when I graduated from college, I went to Yale for undergrad. And then I ended up moving to New York City and working for Wired Magazine for a year. And it was incredible because it was these really brilliant, creative minds there. And then, you know, me as an editorial assistant and helping out. But I graduated in 2008 at the height of the financial crisis. And people kept saying, you know, magazines aren't going to exist in five years and we're all going to have to find something else that we are going to end up doing. Of course, Wired is still around and all those people are still in journalism, but I applied to a PhD program at Yale in film and media studies and art mm-hmm. history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I entered the following year. It, it, it was a great time to start graduate school and sort of wait out the financial crisis and <laughs> take the time to read and write. And with that thought that I'm just going to do what 
feels right and what I love and what I enjoy doing until it stops being enjoyable and then I'll stop doing it. So I went to graduate school and really fell into this work at mm -hmm. the end of my PhD when I started volunteering for uh, the Wesleyan College program that was at Cheshire Correctional Institution. And it really just changed my life. It sounds like your mom and dad did a great job of instilling in you some of their best qualities. And that does help explain uh, on some level uh, where, where you are today with your work. So I am fascinated by what you do and uh, would love to you, for you to describe the program a bit and how it's going. Sure. So we started as a very unlikely idea, right? I started volunteering in this Wesleyan program. And from the first moment I went into this classroom at this maximum security men's prison, these students to me were the brightest, most omnivorous, most engaged students I'd really ever worked with. And I'd been teaching on campus at Yale for a few years at that point. And so it was those students who really encouraged me to start a new program at Yale, that it was important to bring Yale into this field, not just because they knew how, how few true liberal arts college programs were out there and available to incarcerated students in Connecticut, but they also knew that if we could bring Yale into this work, that it would have a ripple effect, that other institutions would follow, would be able to point to Yale as an example and say, if Yale is doing this, maybe we could. Mm -hmm. uh, so we started trying to build a program at this university, maybe 2015, 2016. And at that time, everyone I talked to said, yeah, absolutely not. It's just so unlikely. It, you'll never be able to start a credit-bearing Yale College program. Don't you love those kind of people, by the way? <laughs> you give them an idea, and they just shoot it down. Like, you're, nope, you're never going to do that. Impossible. You'll never do it impossible. But it's also tricky at a place like Yale because the bureaucracy is so thick, and nobody wants to be the person to say no. So it's always about the invisible power structure above and mm -hmm. you know i believe in this program but it just won't happen because right, of all of right, the right, right, right. structures above me so of course that just lit a fire under me and set me down this path and i started bringing together faculty undergraduates graduates it turned out there were a lot of people who were already doing this type of work in prison who were volunteering in prison mm -hmm. who were teaching faculty at yale who were teaching through other programs just because they loved it you know doing it sort of under the radar not being paid for it not being compensated just wanting to be around students in prison because it also enriched their on-campus teaching so we started talking about well how would we create a program at yale how would it work and to make a long story short, after a massive lobbying campaign and convincing a whole lot of people that it was worth at least a, a pilot, we offered our first credit-bearing Yale courses in 2018. And we started in a men's maximum security prison here in Connecticut, sort of at the Massachusetts border. It's the largest prison in Connecticut, 1,500 people incarcerated there. We had 600 people asked to be considered for our first 12-person class. So. We weren't really prepared for that, but it demonstrates the, the need and the interest for a program like this. So from there, the question was, okay, how do we build this into a full-time year-round program? So where the program is now, I'll say in 2021, we established an incredible partnership between 
Yale and the Yale Prison Education Initiative and the University of New Haven so that we have year-round um, credit-bearing courses offered and accredited by both institutions with faculty from both institutions um, teaching. Mm -hmm. We went from being able to offer four classes per year to I think now we're at 37 in the same period of time. That partnership was launched through this transformative grant from the Mellon Foundation uh, in 2021. So it was a three-year grant and it's coming to its end, but it also actually enabled us to create this fellowships program to support alumni of any college and prison program. So people who've had the experience of taking classes while inside, we bring that, we call it like, it's, it's a little bit of a Fulbright for formerly incarcerated people to come to campus at Yale, to get a Yale email address and to receive professional development and mentorship opportunities through matches with host sites across campus. So mm -hmm. for example, we have alumni, we have fellows like that who are interested in divinity or the visual arts or who were matching with, you know, the Sage Center for Health and Justice or the Lyman program at Yale Law School. So we have the program inside and it operates it right now we're at two different prisons. One mm -hmm. is this maximum security men's state prison where we've been since 2018. The other is the women's federal prison in Danbury, Connecticut, where we actually just learned this summer, we're operating the only college and prison program available to any women in any federal prison in the U.S. Now, I've read that tw just over 20% of inmates receive some form of higher education in prison. And I'm not sure whether I feel like, wow, that's really high or damn, that's really low. <laughs> like... Is there some kind of benchmark that you're striving to, not just for the work you do, but just in a general sense, should that be a nationwide statistic more like 40% or is 20% actually really high? So we have this liberal arts model. We're also part of a national consortium for liberal arts in prison that's run through the Bard Prison Initiative. That 20% number includes all the vocational and technical education programming that's happening in prisons across the country. I don't know when that particular number is from, but there's been a huge influx in college and prison programming recently because of the reinstatement of Pell Grant access for mm. people in prison. So we're actually part of that. We're facilitating federal financial aid for students in prison. And we're a very unique program because there's a lot of new programs that are interested in um, joining this field because the Pell Grants make it financially viable, mm -hmm. right? Because it, it adds a stream of revenue for some institutions that are thinking, hey, maybe we'll get into college and prison. For our program, we raise all of the funding for this program through our, our, our um, umbrella organization, Dwight Hall at Yale, which is a 501c3 separate mm -hmm. from Yale University. So we have to raise most of the entire operating cost through private grants and donations. We are facilitating Pell Grants, but we are not looking at students' financial aid eligibility when we're admitting them to our program. So we're able to actually bring in people who aren't Pell eligible as well as the people who are able to drop out. There needs to be more college access, but you know, a student outside in the world has so many different kinds of options for what kinds of college program, secondary, post-secondary education path they're going to pursue. And in prison, a lot of people are constrained to 
technical or vocational education. Right. Things that are going to lead them to X job, right? right? And that is why we believe in extending access to the same kind of elite liberal education that we believe Yale students or University of New Haven students on campus are entitled to, right? That we're extending access to that. So I don't know what percentage of that 20% is liberal arts, but what I can say is everyone, every person in prison should have access to educational programming and they should have access to different kinds of education. They shouldn't have to be in a prison where they say, if you want to do any sort of educational programming, you're going to do this specific vocational degree. That's it. That's mm-hmm. the only thing that's available to you. It is such a fascinating subject because it, it really conjures up the whole debate about punishment versus rehabilitation. And for full disclosure, it's a complicated subject for me because my wife was murdered in 2006. And so I've been through that. Uh, I've been on that cr- crime journey. But as a liberal, I do believe that programs like this are important. I'm just curious if you've gotten pushback over the years from people who just think like, oh, these people should just be thrown in prison. Yeah. Well, where you're coming from is an amazing and complicated position. So I'm grateful for your support and I'm I'm really sorry for your loss. The pushback comes in unexpected ways. When I first proposed this program to the then commissioner of corrections in Connecticut, Scott Semple. And I was just, keep in mind, a graduate student at Yale, you know, and I had this kind of presentation and I was really nervous. And I said, here's what we're going to do. And here are the outcomes we hope for. And here's why we think the liberal arts are important. And he just stopped me. And he said, you just don't have to say anything more. I've been waiting for someone from Yale to come along with this program for years. Mm. For year, I'm in. He's like, I'm in. I will go to whoever it is that you need me to go to on campus to tell them how important it is to have something like this in our prisons. Really, the pushback, we will have folks from corrections every now and then who will push back on, you know, you'll get the classic, well, does my kid have to murder someone in order to get access to this free education? Mm -hmm. Well, it's not a free education, you know, It's free to these students, but someone's paying for it. We're raising the money. People are putting money into this investment. It's an investment in individuals, yes, who've done bad things, but who also have been on the receiving end of a much larger, very, very poorly functioning system, right? We can all see that the criminal justice system is sick, that it's not working, that mass incarceration is a largely racist institution, mm-hmm. right? And so the investment is not just in individuals, but in creating future leaders for a system that we can agree will be better than what we have today. Or just, I mean, the simplest way to look at it, and this again speaks to the punishment versus rehabilitation debate, not every prisoner is going to be in prison for life. They, they come back on the street. And That's so, right. and, and on the street is where we live. So the, the macro question is, do we want them on the street smarter, more capable, more competitive to be able to emerge back into society than to just to come out with nothing more than, uh, you know, experience on how to press a license plate? And so that's where it becomes a bigger conversation. And 
I, I get the other side too. I get the valid question of like, oh, these guys, they get to go to prison. They get three squares a day. They lift weights. They have cable TV and college education. But again, people just have to sort of look at it like they're going to be back on the street in society at some point, most of them. So I think even looking at it selfishly, if for no other reason, the more educated, the more capable these people can be, the better it is for society. I mean, that seems like a no-brainer. That's exactly right. That's exactly that. I mean, beautifully put. We're investing in future citizens who are going to be in your neighborhoods. Would you rather have them the experience of being in these classrooms, thinking through complicated experiences, working through their own education and sometimes their trauma, and coming out ready to make the world a better place, right? Mm -hmm. Make our world a better place. It is selfish. It, it is. We want, and, and I want to be in that world where the people getting out of prison are, I mean, our students have such incredible ambitions and they want to come out and they want to fix the systems that created, that, that created them on their worst days, mm -hmm. right? And they want to make sure that it's not replicated, that there aren't yet. Most of our students, they want to come out and they work, want to work with young people who are you know, at risk of falling into the same cycles that they fell into. Mm -hmm. And who better to do that than our students? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned before you have 600 applicants at what point for 12 available slots. And what criteria do you use? I would assume someone either has to have a high school diploma or a GED. I would imagine in the, the, the vetting process that you're picking inmates that you really feel are going to have the most likelihood of success, not just in the program, but once they graduate and get back out into society. We don't look at sentence length or type of conviction. Mm. I have students who've gone through the whole cycle and they're released and they're on. I have no idea what it is that they did. We don't look at any of the criminological information at all. Um, we have our application which was developed in concert with our colleagues in the Consortium for Liberal Arts in prison. Well, for, first I'll say we have an info session. This is hugely important for a liberal arts in prison program because a lot of people don't know what the heck the liberal arts means, right? right? They think it's like visual arts program. We come in and we talk to them about what kinds of classes we're offering, what it means to be taking a sociology class or physics or whatever, why would you take all of these different disciplines? Is it going to get me a job? You know, I was an art history major. I, you know, like all the same questions that my parents had are the questions that they have about why would they take a liberal arts college program? And parents, by the way, when you tell them your major, their only concern is, am I going to still have to support you when you get out of school? Like that's the only thing going through their minds. That's exactly, I mean, that's exactly. Art history, you can always say, well, like maybe I'll be in a museum someday, but you know, they know better. So, you know, we're explaining the liberal arts component. And at that point, some people say, mm, this is not for me. So, you know, the key is that every step in the process, we're giving people an off-ramp if it's just not for them. Then we have an application that has questions like, what is your dream job? What's your highest educational ambition? Why are you interested in enrolling in this program? Mm -hmm. Those three questions do a lot for us in looking at the applicants, but they also do a lot for them too. I should say a lot of times people in that position, maybe who've been in prison for decades and have never even been allowed to apply to a program like this before, nobody's asked them their dream job or their highest educational ambition. And giving them a second to really imagine what that could be, it's mm. exciting. So 
Then we have a, a sort of longer essay. They have a choice of a few different prompts that are different types of prompts. One's usually a poem. One's maybe a quote from like a piece of nonfiction. And we ask them to respond to that prompt in a timed essay. Mm. And we read all these applications. We have a small committee, it's faculty, staff, and then formerly incarcerated alumni. So people who've been in that same position before. And we're screening for a few things. We're not looking at prior education. We're not looking at writing mechanics because we believe all of that can be taught. We're looking for people who are really engaged mm -hmm. in what we're offering, who are excited about the prospect of being in these classes. That's another component of the application, actually, is we give a list of recent classes and potential future offerings. And we say, which of these are you most interested in? And sometimes people get excited. And it's amazing, even in writing, to see them just get excited about what this could do for me mm -hmm. and how I would thrive if I had access to this kind of program. And honestly, it feels less like being selective and more like matchmaking, right? Right. Finding well, you're looking stuff. to find out who these people are versus focusing on what they did. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So then we, from the application, we select a number to interview. Then we do an in-person interview in the prison. This last year, we added a, a new component, which was a mock seminar for the students who were selected to be interviewed so that they can actually sit in on what feels like one of our classes. And again, have the agency, sometimes, you know, someone's a really great candidate and then they'll sit in a classroom with a bunch of other people and be asked to discuss a poem and they'll say, this is not for me, <laughs> you know, pat, hard pass. I'm not. Public poetry isn't for everyone. I wanted to ask you what the graduation rate is, like the, the inmates who start the program, how many finish? So we just had our first graduation in June. Mm -hmm. uh, we yeah. had seven, seven students graduate. This year, I think we're looking at nine or 10 graduating from that men's prison. You know, we just started last year in the women's prison, but we will have our first graduate this year, which is really exciting. So is that seven we out of the 12? No, it's a trickier number to think about because people aren't always full-time mm -hmm. or part sometimes they're saying, look, I have a really busy, you know, I'm fighting my case this semester, so I'm only going to take one or two classes. Everything takes a lot longer in prison. Mm -hmm. and, and then, of course, some students are released before they can graduate. So we have one student who was part of our graduation in June who actually completed his degree on campus at University of New Haven, but the prison let him come back into the prison to walk with his former classmates. So we don't really have a percentage because we just had our first graduation, but I will say something that I think is really great. This is a number I think represents the quality of what we're doing. We have a 100% retention rate. We've never had any student leave our program of their own volition mm. you know sometimes they get transferred or they'll get released from prison so they can't continue with their studies but we don't have anyone in either of those prisons who's opted out who's ever been a part of the program and has decided to not continue so everyone who's in there will eventually graduate provided they don't get transferred or right. released from prison and if released hopefully they'll graduate on the outside either on campus with us or they'll be able to transfer their credit somewhere else. And at what point down the road do you think you 
like a recidivism rate? Is it going to take five, 10 years to see? Because look, there's a lot of white collar prisons with a lot of educated people in them. And so the the mere fact of having a college degree isn't necessarily going to stop people from committing crimes. And it will be interesting over time to see the real impact. Um, I, I suspect that it will be a positive impact. But at what point do you think you will start to have those kinds of insights into what happens once they leave and try to get jobs with these degrees? I mean, we keep an eye on it. We have a good amount of students who are out, who are working, who are housed. We have an extremely low um What I can tell you is that we have this sister program in New York State, the Bard Prison Initiatives. They're much bigger and much older, but a lot of what we do is very similar. They're looking at a 4% recidivism rate. Mm. It's shockingly low. Well, we believe our program is sort of in an equivalent place. Well, it would make sense that the numbers would be low because if someone has the desire to apply to a program and go through the program, it does speak to something about their character that maybe there was just some bad stuff in their life in the past that, that and that's not really who they are. And this gives them an opportunity to be who they really are. So one would hope that once in the program that they do end up turning a corner and, and becoming productive members of society. My last question to you is, I know what it probably means to the inmate and the inmate's family to go through this program, giving them a sense of self-worth and validation. It has to be very gratifying work for you to be able to do this. You've been a teacher, but this is a whole next level kind of thing where you are helping incarcerated people literally change their lives. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It's an amazing thing. I mean, there are many moments that really feel special. You know, the first class that we had sitting in the classroom with our 12 admitted students and feeling like we really are going to do this. We're investing in you. We believe in you. And then seeing our first graduates in June, seeing the looks on their faces and their families' faces and the pride. Um, I mean, for me, it's what makes the existential dread go away. It makes life manageable. It's what it's all about, right? Is helping other people, giving back, making the world a better place for the future. For, yeah. for all, selfishly for all of us, like you said, but also mm -hmm. for everyone who's coming next. Well, I think you're doing a great job. Wish you much continued success with the program and whatever is going to come next for you. And hopefully you'll come back and give us an update at some point. Thanks. I would love that. All righty. Take care. Take care. Bye. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and have a great week.